0: Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC interviews. I'm Mary McDougall, and joining me today we have Hamish Bailey, lead manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. Ruffer is one of the few investment trusts that has a multi-asset portfolio focused on wealth preservation and has performed very well over the past year thanks to a rebound in equity markets, a very successful Bitcoin trade and its manager's rigorous focus on inflation protection. Hamish joined Ruffer in 2002 and founded its Edinburgh office in 2009. Hamish, thank you for joining me. How are you?
1: Thank you, Mary. Uh, very well. And thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: It's my pleasure. So to kick off, in your annual report, which I must say is an excellent read, came out earlier this month, you describe rougher Investment Company as an all-weather portfolio. Please, can you explain what you mean by this?
1: Sure. Um, I think it's about taking the stress out of people's investment decisions, because if we're doing a good job for our investors then we should be making a steady return for them in both good markets and bad markets so you'll never hear from ruffer sorry you know terrible markets down 25% but we've done well because we're only down 20 that that's just not in our dna so our investors shouldn't have to worry if stock markets going up down or sideways we we should be doing the same job for them and the reality is that most people's lives are aligned with the economic cycle you know people don't lose their jobs in, in good times, they don't have a bonus cut in good times. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense to have your rainy day pot of savings aligned with everything else in, 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 in your life. So I guess we're there as a diversifier to be called upon as a, a, in a crisis. And of course, we strongly believe that the strength of compounding is in our favor. By not losing money in a crisis, we should be able to produce better returns for investors over the long run.
0: And inflation is a, a hot topic that's worrying investors at the moment, and Ruffer has been raising concerns about inflation for years. And in your annual report, it says, um, conviction in the long-term inflationary endgame has never been higher, to quote. Uh, please, can you elaborate on why you think that's the case?
1: Yes. So uh, you correctly identify that, that it's been um, been some time that we've been talking about inflation and, and, and positioning the portfolio for inflation. I think um, Covid has really been a, you know, a game changer in terms of the evolution of inflationary dynamics. Now perhaps come back to that in a second. But I think at the moment, the inflation debate is really revolving around short term factors, you know, the base effects on prices owner imputed rents inflation expectations what's the oil price going to do all these quite small factors that have a big impact in the short term um, but they they push the debate into the realm of is this transitory or not and i think miss some of the more important aspects of the broader picture so i think it's safe to say that inflation has proved to be more stubborn in the in the last 18 12 18 months than the transitory um, crowd expected. Um, the individual components of inflation have ebbed and flowed, but a bit like a game of a whack-a-mole, as soon as one subsides, there seems to be another supply size shortage to, to replace it. So those short-term inflationary dynamics are, 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 are definitely pushing prices up at the moment. But let's perhaps take a step back and look at the longer-term factors, because this is where our focus lies. And um i th- i think if you think about an autumn bonfire that's a good place to start you know for the last decade central bankers have been acting sort of faced with a soggy pile of leaves because of all the deflationary forces in the world and that might be regulation of the of the banks um it might be cheap labor and production in, in china and the far east um it it, it it might be the internet and uh availability of uh, uh, price comparison, etc. Um Now, those things, all those things, appear to be in retreat. And I would also put on top of that, globalization appears to be in retreat. So think trade wars, think regulation of uh, uh, of big tech. Of course, China can only join the global labor market once. And that's not something that will be repeated. And actually, it's becoming uh, more expensive to be doing business in, 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 in these far-flung far, far places. Um, and, and, and I'd also say that supply chains are moving both physically, i.e. towards home markets, and also metaphorically from a just-in-time model to a just-in-case model. That's sort of one of the impacts of, of COVID. So, fascinatingly, we've sort of you know, had these long-term factors that would suggest to us that uh, some of the disinflationary um, pressures uh, are subsiding, reversing, and we now have the perfect accelerant, the fire lighter, if you like, in the shape of COVID, um, to to get the fire going and ignite that dry tinder. So why do I say that? Well, I think when we look back, probably the most important change that we'll see in the last 18 months from from, from the prospects of the the debate on inflation, is the passing of the baton of stimulus from central banks to governments. So if you think uh, post-financial crisis in 2008, it was all down to central banks to try and lower interest rates, quantitative easing, um, all these things to try and stimulate um, economic growth. And what we saw with the onset of COVID was governments, either the fiscal channel taking over that support um, and Milton Friedman yeah, uh, had, had 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 a great quote where he said there was nothing so permanent as a temporary government scheme, and I think that is the risk in this transition: is that politicians are not good at uh, reversing policies which people will vote for, for for very obvious reasons. So I think what we may see is that many of the things that are deemed to be temporary will will prove. Be permanent in terms of support for the economy. So that that, that's one factor I would point to in COVID. The other is is sort of political imperative. Clearly, borrowing has gone up enormously through through the COVID crisis, and um, there's a political imperative to keep the real cost of borrowing low. I remember Rishi Sunak's last budget, but he was asked, you know, aren't you worried about the the amount of debt and uh, that the uk is now carrying he said well i'm not worried about the amount of debt because the cost of servicing that is is very low at the moment and we should be making the most of that and in some ways he's quite right about that but what he said you know the thing that um keeps him awake effectively is is the cost of debt going up so what you can see there is is, is really financial repression is going to be the path forward keep the cost of borrowing very low and probably a fairly relaxed view on inflation. So I, I, th- I think those things are, are, are what get us really excited about inflation at the moment. And I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come on later to talk about the sort of behavioural aspects of inflation, because clearly, they are very important that once this snowball starts rolling, it can, it can you know, gather size and pace quite quickly
0: that's really interesting. So what you're saying is that there are long term inflationary pressures, this would usually be eased by um, putting up interest rates, but the government needs to keep the cost of borrowing low. Yeah, yeah. The Bank of England, um, you know, there are there have been reports coming out saying that rates are likely to, to rise sooner than had previously expected. Does is an in- interest rates being raised too quickly. Is that a concern to you?
1: I mean, it, it would be a concern if a sort of Paul Volcker sort of character uh, emerged that was really determined to stamp out in, in, in inflation. But, but, but we don't see that. I mean, of course, there will be token gestures from the world's central banks to, to raise interest rates to, 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 to combat inflation. But I think they're deliberately going to be behind the curve on this. Um, so I think yes, interest rate rises will come, but the thing is that they will lag uh, the rise in inflation. And, and and the reasons for that are firstly, of course, for government finances, um, you know, a negative real interest rate, which is what we're talking about there, is 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 very beneficial um, because governments are heavily indebted, and that makes the cost of servicing that debt uh, 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 less punitive. Um, and secondly, just sort of looking at society as a whole, you know, you look at the corporate sector, you look at the consumer the consumer sector, you know, high levels of of, of debt in both. Um and so you know, central banks have got to be careful here that they don't cut off the nose to spite the face. You know, if the if the effect of raising interest rates is to snuff out any economic recovery, then they've they've kind of defeated themselves.
0: So it looks like you're you're clearly um I think inflation is going to be with us for a while, and index-linked bonds is your main protection against that. You've got thirty-five um, percent of the fund in bonds, nearly all of which are inflation-protected. Um, you've got quite a lot in long, longer-dated index-linked guilds, which sell on negative real yields. What what are the negative real yields on these bonds, and at what point would these become unattractive?
1: Yeah. Um, so the very long end of the UK uh, index link gilt market, you're on a negative 2.3% real yield at the moment. Now, to put that in context, that is pretty close to as expensive as UK index link, index link gilts have ever been. So um, does that make them deeply unattractive? Well, I think here the we need to differentiate between conventional gilts which are sort of mathematically bounded as an asset class because interest rates could only fall so much um, and so you know you've got you've got limited upside in conventionals and your downside is, is significant. In index link because you've got two moving parts here you've got the inflation rate and the nominal interest rate Actually, there's a lot more to go for, you know, because if inflation picks up, and as we were just saying, um, 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 interest rates stay low, and that there's nothing to stop that minus two becoming minus three, minus four, in theory, maybe even minus five, although that would be an extreme event at at the very long end of the curve. I mean, short, short dated index link yields are already at minus five. Um, So if you believe that inflation can keep rising, and there is limited scope for central banks to raise interest rates, that I think index link gilts remain a, a fascinating play on, on inflation.
0: Why do you have so much more in the UK um, index linked gilts than you do in US TIPS, which are inflation protected US treasuries, because aren't the um, negative real yields deeper in the UK than they are in the US?
1: Uh, yes, they are. and and they always are actually. um so so you you that that's not a sort of anomaly at the moment. i I think the short answer is sterling in that the dollar is you know the world's reserve currency. And because the conduit of inflation is is, is often through the currency, it means that inflation in the u k. Is a lot more volatile than it is in the US. So that, that that I think makes the UK index link market more interesting. Um there there are some other factors though. Um there's a huge distortion in 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 in, in the UK market through forced buying from pension funds. Now, you know, that probably pushes yields down. It's, it's a permanent feature of the market, but you know, it it pushes. Uh, it pushes yields down, but it also leaves a comparatively smaller free float uh, available for for investors like us um, and, and 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 your listeners, um, and that can be quite interesting because we we always love to own assets that people might panic into. So think back to the financial crisis; you know that was things like the Swiss franc and the Japanese yen. Um, in, in in the COVID crisis, it was things like volatility call options. So if you can own that asset. That people need to buy in a crisis, then it can be a very powerful protection, and I think that's what index-linked gilts give you, given the comparatively sort of smaller pre-float. I think the the other sort of niche argument that's quite often given for tips is that they have a deflation floor. So, you know, if 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 you have deflation through the life of that bond, then you don't lose money. Um, you, you basically have a floor on, on 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 what you're repaid. I think that's quite a clever gimmick, but if you're buying tips, you know, for any more than a couple of years uh, in duration, then it is pretty much a gimmick because I don't think anyone's really expecting deflation for for that period of time. So I sort of think that's a bit of an irrelevance if you're if you're going any further out than two three years. Um, I mean, I should say that we, we we do own some tips and we have owned tips in the past, so opportunities do arise. I don't think. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with it as an asset class. It's just at the moment we find the index link gilts more interesting.
0: It's interesting what you say about pension funds, because as more money is going into defined contribution schemes, there might be less pressure on pension funds to own gilts, and that might have the reverse effect.
1: The, the, there are sort of two impacts. There. I mean, you're right. If you look on a sort of 25-year view, yes, the money, you know. People will, will die, pensioners will be paid and, and, and money will come out of these defined benefit schemes. But at the same time, as they get closer to maturity, they put more money into uh, uh, liability matching, which effectively means buying more gilt. So they will actually be taking money out of riskier assets and putting it into things like index link gilt. So it's it's not quite as simple as just saying, that's a shrinking pot, and so money will be coming out and i I also think the time scales are you know, are long
0: and you have um quite a significant amount of long dated bonds as we've discussed, and these have a higher interest rate risk it it looks like you have various protections built in to reduce duration um I wonder if it might be sort of simpler and cheaper to just hold the shorter duration. Can you I- explain the thought process behind?
1: behind this. Yes, I mean this, this is a debate that we, we we have had internally. And um the and I know some of our competitor investment trusts have, have opted for shorter duration as well. I I, I think the answer is that the, the loss in your swaps is limited, whereas the upside in the linkers is, is not. So if there was a significant fall in real yields maybe a behavioral panic or a currency crisis then if you hold the very long dated index link gilts then you capture that um your 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 option you know the premium in your option is 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 lost but that's relatively small in comparison to how much you can make in in the long dated index link gilts whereas if you're holding the shorter duration you you don't get as much bang your buck. So I I think we would be sort of philosophically aligned with people who've opted for shorter durations because the thought process here is that some of the short-term inflationary dynamics perversely could be quite bad news for index link gilts because it's sort of benign inflation in the form of reopening stronger than expected economic growth. So that pushes up uh, nominal bond yields and, and and index links suffer uh as as a result of that now that may not happen but it but it is a distinct possibility and we've seen it we saw it happen a bit in in the first quarter of this year and to some extent that dynamic was around in september this year as well so the the interest rate protection the payer options uh, uh insulate us from that but they still allow us to have that exposure to the to, 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 to the long duration element of the index linked bonds, which could be very, very powerful if the sort of inflation environment that we've discussed comes comes to pass.
0: And in November, you made you um, invested in Bitcoin. And I think your argument in your annual report, I think your argument is that it's a, a store of value that can't be debased, maybe an alternative to gold. But I'm interested to know what analysis you did and how did you decide in november that that was the, the right time to buy it
1: yeah so i i think digital gold is is, is a good shorthand for the rationale behind it um, you know an asset that sits outside the sort of monetary system is is, is really interesting to us and we followed it for um for, for several years before we actually invested in in, in bitcoin um, what sort of tipped us over the edge. I think it was the fact that if you go back, even you know as recently as four or five, six years ago, there was a reasonable chance that Bitcoin and, and, and actually all digital currencies, uh, all cryptocurrencies were worthless. And what we started to see at the tail end of last year was some institutional acceptance of, of, of cryptocurrency. So that's particularly sort of big financial institutions um uh, getting on board with the idea. And as that institutional adoption gains momentum, it becomes less likely that, um, uh, that the asset is worth it. So we felt we could move quickly on it and, 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 and gain exposure and, and, and that proved to be the case. We also, we took a lot of time to get comfortable on the ESG side and particularly the E, the environmental part of the ESG, uh, we did a lot of work on that. And the more digging we did, the more we realized that um, while the, the the data is pretty sparse on this, there's a huge incentive for miners to source cheap uh, energy, which usually means renewable energy. So actually, while Bitcoin is, is very energy intensive, um, it is naturally attracted to the, uh, the, the, the cheapest source of sort of energy. So that was another bit of work that went in the background. But I think the main thing that sort of uh, you know, encouraged us to go in was you know, the case for it, the sort of digital gold, um, plus the sort of growing regulatory and institutional acceptance of, of it being an asset that was was here to stay.
0: And, and how did you then decide in April that it was the right time to sell?
1: Um, so if, if, if you think of it through the prism of it was it was a defensive, it was a protective asset for us, um, the same role that gold plays. Um, we felt that it was getting quite hot as an asset class, um, you know, both from a sort of you know there were lots of leveraged instruments playing um, cryptocurrencies, and you know we all know the stories of the various tweets that were, were going around then, and so we felt well. If this is just a defensive asset class, it feels like actually, you know, this is not the sort of scenario that we want going on going on around it. And so we we, we took the last of our profits in in April, as you say, at about um sixty thousand dollars. Fifty five was our last exit point.
0: Okay. Well, it's close to this close to that now. I think um, maybe you should have put gone past in this July. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's gone, it's gone past that we're north, north of 60 now. But it's, it's, I think, you know, for us, it's, it, you know, it's, we, we, we keep an eye on it. It's, uh, you know, it's not off the menu forever. But it's, you know, for the time being, we're, we're happy with our holding in gold.
0: What's your thoughts on other cryptocurrencies? Do you think you'll be investing in any other ones? I know you bought some sort of Bitcoin proxies, is that do you think you'll be getting into other areas of the market?
1: Um, n- not immediately, no. I, I the the attraction of Bitcoin was that it was by far the largest of all the cryptocurrencies. And that, you know, when we talk about, you know, could it survive, could it be worthless, that I mean that gives us a huge advantage. Um so, you know, that's that's not to say that, you know, the others won't survive, but Clearly, you know, if you want to hold an asset that is going to do well for you, um, you know, in potentially in an extreme scenario of sort of monetary currency debasement, then you know, you you want to be in, in the biggest ship and 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 that was Bitcoin.
0: And you mentioned you said that you now prefer gold. Um, it's been a bit of a disappointment, I think you you would probably say in in recent months. Do you think Gold has suffered from the Bitcoin developments.
1: Um, probably very, very difficult to to know for sure. Um, very difficult to, to track the flows, but uh, uh, I think that's quite likely. Um, does that mean that gold is redundant if if, if, if cryptocurrency continues to do well? No, I, do, I don't think so. I think, you know, in extremist for the sort of 3000 year pedigree that gold has probably trumps the, the upstart. So I would agree with you. It's been been a bit disappointing in the short term, but I, I don't think it's it's tarnished as an asset class longer term.
0: Now let's talk about your equity weighting, um, which makes up about 40% of the portfolio. It's got just over half of it's in UK stocks, which is perhaps quite unusual. Why such a high UK weighting?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's unusual. Uh, I mean, it's unusual for us and unusual for, a you know, a, a globally exposed uh, investment trust. Um, uh, the answer is that, you know, we see really interesting value in the UK, and I, I don't think we're the only people to see this. Um, you look at the amount of sort of M&A activity going on in the UK this year, you know, clearly, particularly coming from private equity, actually, really, Clearly, others are 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 seeing the same thing. So, we have a, a sort of double discount on on, on on UK assets at the moment. Firstly, there was the sort of the you know, Brexit um, 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 cloud hanging over markets, and then certainly in the initial stages of COVID, the UK was was deemed to be to be a laggard in terms of its response. So, um, I think I think it's it's mostly that that value angle. I mean, I would also say that. The nature of our equity exposure at the moment is that we're looking for cyclical businesses, you know, businesses that will perform very well in, a, in an economic upturn, and um, that is is its sort of natural offset to some of the risks that we, we mentioned earlier in in index link guilt. So, um, you know, the businesses we own, I mean, they've you know they've, they've done very well recently. They did very well in the first quarter of this year, and they should do well in an environment of reopening and rising uh, rising yields. And the UK market is is sort of naturally positioned for that with energy exposure, banking exposure as well.
0: Yeah. So if we took Lloyds and NatWest to two two of your big holdings, Um, so a rise in interest rates would be good for these, but it seems like you're quite worried about the... Macro inflation background. Do you, do you worry about these companies getting into a significant amount of bad debts?
1: Well, I think on the positive side, the two banks you've named there appear to have hugely over provisioned for bad debts. Um, regulatory pressure, you know, going back five, six, seven years forced them to do that. And this is now starting to unwind. So that's very positive for, for shareholders. And the government's credit guarantees uh uh through covid have also been very helpful to them um so that's the positive case um i think it's very important to see our holdings in financials in the portfolio context so absolutely rising rising yields that's you know scenario that hurts some parts of the portfolio we want things that will do well pay us options you know we the interest rate options we mentioned earlier they do that i think that the, the uk financials do a similar job but you know of course if the economy is imploding then banks do not do well um i i, I don't think you know you you, you can really make a good case for them being a great investment in that scenario but of course we carry lots of protection already in the portfolio to to, 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 to navigate that sort of scenario so um, you know, we've got to think about how do we achieve our investment objective, that's sort of all weather uh, return that we're trying to produce. We need to think about the benign scenario and how we make money in, 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 in that event, but also um, the, you know, the crisis moment. And, you know, so we, we hold investments in for in both those scenarios. And the banks firm fall, firm fall firmly in the sort of blue sky scenario. They should do well for us in that environment.
0: And it's quite eye-catching that Shell and BP are your largest two equity holdings. Um, Clearly, recent months, um, it's been clear that we're not done with oil yet. um, And these companies have done, their share prices have done well. Um, But it it also seems like the the managements have been uh, on a programme to get out of oil and fossil fuels. Do you think these companies will be able to do it?
1: They certainly have the ability to do so and the incentive, you know, that their, their survival to some extent depends on that. But the, I think the trickier question, and maybe this is what you're getting at, is whether they can do that in a way that will benefit their shareholders. They are not going to overpay for renewable assets and for that, that transition. And, and the jury is out on that at the moment. But I think as an investor, you have the safety net of a very cheap valuation they're clearly not priced to achieve that transition at the moment but if you take vp you know as a dividend yield of five and a half percent and it's buying back a further five to six percent of its stock so you know those returns to shareholders only represent 60 percent of their free cash flow so there's still plenty more to reinvest into the business and fund the energy energy transition so they they have the abilities to it i i i think whether that can be executed is, 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 is a different question, but the valuation does give you a safety net. Um, I and mean, I'd also add that we spend a lot of time engaging with, 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 well, with all the companies in our portfolio, but particularly with the energy companies. And we do this both on our own and in collaboration with other investors. And um, these companies are changing. There's a lot of work to do, there's no question about that, but they acknowledge the need to change. And if we can support and encourage them on that journey, then so much the better.
0: You've also got 8% of the portfolio in Japanese equities and looking through your annual annual report it looks like there are 36 individual holdings. Some of these are very, very small proportions. Why so many?
1: Um, good spot. I'm glad to see that someone reads the annual report and gets that far through it. Um, um, so We have a basket of 19 Japanese equity holdings. Those are the smaller ones that you're referring to, which we think are... Ripe for act, activism and the realization of, of, I was going to say hidden value, but in our view, it's not so well hidden value. So, if, if, if you cast your, your mind back a few years, one of the arrows of Arbonomics is corporate governance reform. And uh, this has resulted in a stewardship code, which has given shareholders real teeth to engage with with, with companies and try and bring about change. And so, we've built up a basket of of, of these 19 uh, companies that really fall into three camps and there's some overlap between these, but there's the sort of parent subsidiary relationship where a parent owns a large part of of a smaller entity, sort of lazy balance sheet type companies just where they have far too much uh, cash uh, in their businesses. And then there's the third category where there's activist involvement. um, all of those are sort of ripe for change so the parent-child relationship, the parent subsidiary relationship might be where uh, you know the parent buys out the minority interest at a premium in in the subsidiary. Um, we've seen quite a lot of activity on on the lazy balance sheet type companies, so where uh, dividends and share buybacks are are being are being increased to try and return some of that cash to shareholders. So I think japan is is, is one of the few, markets globally where um you know, there's some very low hanging fruit uh, for this sort of activity
0: i guess you'll have your work cut out with the number of companies you have to monitor there um sorry one thing i should have asked earlier but i think it's quite interesting on the inflation side is infrastructure investment trusts have been very popular this year we've seen a lot launching they have a degree of um, inflation protection built into them through Government contracts. It doesn't look like you own them. What do you do? You have thoughts on um, infrastructure as as an asset class and and its um, ability to help protect from inflation. Yeah. Um, so I'll probably start by
1: saying I, I am not an expert on this, but clearly, kind of operating in the investment company sphere. Yes, you know, we we, we come across this quite quite a lot. Um, I, I would come back to what I said earlier and about assets that people panic into. And if you're someone who's holding a lot of cash in your bank account and suddenly, you know, the penny drops and you say, Gosh, you know, I'm actually losing three, four, five percent per annum in real terms, what on earth do I own? And and and, and you know, that's happening. On mass across many investors, um, many different geographies. Do do you panic into into listed infrastructure, or do you go for the purest form of protection, which is um, it's got the best covenant, it's government backed, and there's no dilution of that covenant at all through some other structure, Um, or or or, or do you go for the second degree? I, I I think you panic into into gold and the and, and the index link bond side. I think the other element here is the sort of, um, if it looks like a bond, feels like a bond, then it probably is a bond. So how some, and I don't think this just goes for infrastructure. I think there's, there's quite a lot of alternative asset classes out there that um, you know have, have, have been flying off the shelves in an environment of low interest rates. And you have to ask the question, you know if your discount rate were to were to rise would would those with those assets actually um you know trade on the same valuations um, question mark
0: yeah, and just a few uh, mechanical questions, according to your fact sheet, your annual management charge is one percent um your closest rivals. What I would consider your closest rivals, Capital Gearing Trust and Personal Assets Trust have stated their annual management fees as 0.6% and 0.65% respectively. How do you justify your premium? Um,
1: I, I quite often hear us compared to a hedge fund actually. I think you know a lot of the strategies that we're employing, you think about payer options. we haven't talked about some of the credit protection we hold. Um, you know, these are things that can really go up in a in, 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 a, in a crisis, rather than you know the sort of um, you know the insulation, if you like, will go down less than the average in a crisis. So so that's quite we, we quite often get, get get compared to hedge funds and, and look like a cheap hedge fund. And I I guess the best comparator in our sector to that is is, is BH Macro, and we have you know more than half the price of of BH Macro.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. And also, it, I was a bit confused in your annual report. So the Trust holds four Ruffer funds, and each make up over 3% of the portfolio. So they're reasonably substantial holdings. Um, in the annual report, it says that for one of these funds, that no management fee is charged by Ruffer AIFM Limited on this investment. So what's the position on the other three? Does that like, Are you charging double management fees?
1: Uh, very, very good question. No, we, we, we never charge double management fees. So um, some some of the rougher in-house funds have their own uh, charge levied internally. So we, a rougher investment company will not charge an additional fee on that. Uh, where they don't have an internal management fee, then it is charged. So no double charging.
0: Okay. And um, we're running out of time, but final question. The Trust is trading on a 6% premium it's obviously been very popular. You're doing an open offer in November, which retail investors can participate in. Please, can you tell us about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the board are always keen to uh, not to let the premium uh, get too high, because that's not in the interests of, uh, you know, long-term investors or people wanting to regularly add to their to their holdings and investment companies. So the way they, they've traditionally done that is to issue uh, shares regularly at a small premium so that it's accretive to existing shareholders uh, but but to people who 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 want to buy that that's been been pretty effective um, our premium's been the 1 to 3% range recently um it's crept up to 4 now and so uh, we're going to keep issuing shares to do that we're issuing a prospectus that we will put to shareholders um but at the same time we thought it was a good opportunity to give existing shareholders uh, the ability to add to their holdings if they want to. And hopefully that will clear some of this demand overhang that's pushing up, up the premium. Um, and any excess, uh, uh, you know, any, 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 any uh, rights that aren't taken up will be available to, to, to a wider audience. So uh, there will be more information to come out on this uh, in, in November um but we're looking to do it in a in, in a way that's very friendly to retail shareholders who make up a significant part of our shareholder base.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Hamish. That's been really interesting. I really appreciate your time.